Louisiana is a place that wears its history proudly. But long before New Orleans' French Quarter was a bustling city center, people were making their home on this coast. Native American tribes, too often forgotten in the mix of cultures celebrated in this state. For generations, they've lived and fed themselves here. And now, those homes and meals are under threat. Whenever I first got here, there were cows. Right when you turn off the bridge, there were cattle. Now you go right there, there's hardly any more land. And now it's open water. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, Native American foodways in Louisiana and what's happening to them because of coastal land loss. But also, what tribes here are doing to solve those problems and how their plans might end up helping all of us. In a collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network and The Lens, Barry Yeoman brings us this story. This is my third trip down the bayou to visit Teresa Dardar, so I already knew to show up on an empty stomach. By the time my colleague Eve Abrams and I arrive in Pointe-Chen, Teresa has pulled from the freezer some trout and shrimp that her husband Donald caught from a nearby canal. She pops the thawed trout fillets into a Ziploc bag with cornmeal and fills a saucepan with vegetable oil. Your finger is really close to the oil. (laughs) Yeah, just so I don't burn it. (laughs) And is this trout you'll caught? Yeah, Donald went fishing, and he had a really good day. (laughs) On another burner, white beans are simmering with red bell peppers and salt meat. Behind the trout sits a third pan, this one filled with a dish called pot-fried shrimp. Pot-frying, Teresa explains, begins with cooking the shrimp in the liquid they naturally express when they get hot. You just put them in the pot and the, uh, the water comes up and you just let it boil out the water and then you just fry them. Is it peel first? Yeah. Yeah, I, I already cooked some with butter, parsley, onions and everything. Uh, with the peeling on it, where it stays, you know, it stays real juicy on the inside. Well, Donald said, they're good, but next time, peel mine. (laughs) He doesn't like to peel the shrimp while he's eating it. Teresa is 62, with long, dark hair and a face that conveys both warmth and gravitas. The kitchen where she's making us lunch is inside the headquarters of the Poinishan Indian tribe. Hers is one of several French-speaking tribes that inhabit that nether zone south of New Orleans that's neither fully land nor fully water. These are flat delta lands laced with bayous, with egrets and pelicans flying overhead, and shrimp boats tied to docks across from their owners' houses. Our lunch feels as fertile as the landscape, those shrimp briny and chewing and tasting in a good way like the wetlands from which they were harvested. And the conversation rarely strays from food. As we eat, a tribal council member named Arlene Knockhand drops by, and someone asks her what she plans to bring to next weekend's community potluck. That's what you're making for the uh, luncheon? A gumbo? It might be chicken, it might be shrimp, but I don't get much crabs. But I do have some crab meat, and I do have a few shrimp. I can either do that, and I might even put the chicken in there too. The gumbo. Like they say, throw everything in, but the kitchen sink. 
I got a couple of big roosters in the yard over there. Oh, one. Kill one and out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason food looms so large here. For generations, the Poinishen were pretty much self-sufficient. Their fertile soil produced large gardens, and they raised livestock too. They hunted and trapped and foraged for medicinal herbs. And they pulled a bountiful harvest from the wetlands. Shrimp, finfish, crab, oysters. They developed a cuisine that borrowed from their French Acadian and African Creole neighbors, who in turn also borrowed from them. All three cultures spoke French, Louisiana's colonial language. Nowadays, every one of these traditional methods of procuring food is under stress. One reason is apparent once we step out the back door of the tribal building. There's a small yard, a row of trees, and behind them, a new levee under construction. Beyond that, it's almost entirely open water with little grassy islands poking up every now and then. It's beautiful, but it's not natural. Back here, there used to be enough solid ground for cattle to graze, but the land around Poitinchen is disappearing part of the 16 square miles of coastal Louisiana that essentially crumble into the Gulf of Mexico each year. Geographer Rebecca Jones says this area around Terrebonne Bay went from 10% water in 1916 to 90% water last year. Before lunch, Teresa and I sit on the back deck and watch a truck driving back and forth, laying the base for the new levee. The uh, background noise that you hear, it's a big truck, dump truck that's passing. Right behind us is uh, what they call Morganza to the Gulf. I'm sure you've heard of that. Well, it's passing right behind our tribal building. Morganza to the Gulf is a series of levees and floodgates designed to protect communities from hurricanes along a 98-mile stretch of coast. Poinichen is within its defenses, but Teresa wonders if those defenses are too modest and arriving too late. I just realized a little while back why they call it Morganza to the Gulf right here in the back of our tribal building. Because the levee doesn't go to the Gulf. The Gulf of Mexico will come to us. Teresa grew up in Homa, a small city about 15 miles northwest of Poinichon. Her mother is from this tribal community, though, and during Teresa's childhood, they often traveled way down the bayou from Homa to visit her grandfather. Teresa and her mother would show up unannounced in Poinichon. They'd stop at the grocery at the end of the road and ask someone there to ferry them across the bayou in a boat. From there, they'd walk to her grandfather's house. Back then, there were a lot of trees, oak, hackberry, palmetto, and a lot of cattle. And uh, I remember when, as a young child, we used to come down and my grandfather used to kill a pig. And uh, I'll never forget that. I thought it was so gross because he used to take a cup and just dip, you know, just take blood and drink it. And whenever I saw uh, dances with wolves and when they took a bite of the heart of the buffalo, it reminded me of my grandfather drinking the blood of the pig. Teresa's mother used to make boudin, a soft, rice-filled sausage with the pork her grandfather raised. But that land couldn't sustain pigs now. Where he lives now, I mean, it doesn't look like the same place at all. There's no more trees. There's hardly any more land. Even though he would be alive, he wouldn't be able to have chickens. My uncle wouldn't be able to have uh, cattle because my uncle had cattle. 
they wouldn't be able to. In fact, I don't know if they would even want to still be there because the piece of land is so small now that I don't think anyone would be able to, to live there. Teresa met Donald at a dance at the old Hollywood Inn in Homa. They got married in 1974 when she was 19 and he was 18. Donald was a shrimper for part of the year and Teresa became his deckhand. In the winter, Donald trapped nutria and muskrats just like his father and his grandfather did. Trapping was a family business, which meant Teresa had a lot to learn. Fortunately, Donald's mother, Nasia, was an able teacher. Nasia taught Teresa how to skin a rodent, how to cook a fish, and how to potboil a crab. She still lives next door. Nasia's husband died in 2015. She's 83, and hers is a backyard you can hear. In case you missed that, here it is once more in English. I'm Nezia Dordon. Um, we walk in the garden, I plant over here every year. I make some green beans and some cucumbers, tomatoes, and uh, field peas, butter beans, okra. That's it. Nasia's garden, which she plants with her son Eugene, is a wonder. Along with the vegetables, there are guinea hens and muscovy ducks and roosters that try to chase off all the feral cats she feeds. Recently, Eugene has planted fruit trees, satsumas, grapefruits, apples, mandarins. They even have three cows. They have mumu, right? Mumu, T-bone, and hamburger. <laughs> That's their names. Although, on the day of our visit, they've taken a bovine stroll down the levee, so we didn't get to see them. Nasia grows so many vegetables that she sells the surplus to her neighbors. But she's the exception among the Poinishan. With so much of the land gone, and the rest vulnerable to floods, many tribal members have given up on gardening. Most of Nasia's own 15 children have moved away, in part because there's no empty land for them to build their own houses. That's my husband, Samuel. That's me, Nasia. That's the oldest one, Bonita, Anna, Basil. They would Donald, still have the land like we had, we had before. We could have made a road to go to the back for them to, like a subdivision for all her kids to live back there. But with land loss, you know, it's... Uh, it's not the same. There are lots of reasons for the loss of land on the Louisiana coast. The levying of the Mississippi River starves the wetlands of the sediment necessary to keep pace with the sinking delta. The dredging of man-made canals by the oil and gas industry sucks saltwater inland. That, in turn, kills the vegetation that holds the land together. Plus, with climate change, sea levels are rising. Land loss has put a pinch on gardening, grazing, and trapping for the Poinishan tribe, which has 680 members. The erosion of nearby barrier islands has made the community more vulnerable to hurricanes, like Gustav in 2008, which tore a hole in Teresa's roof. To that, add the impacts of the BP oil spill and the economics of shrimping during a time of cheap imports. Dock prices have fallen so low that it's hard for commercial shrimpers like Donald to justify the cost of boat fuel. 
If there's one type of food that defined the traditional Poinichon diet, it was the daily rotation of fresh-caught shrimp, oysters, and crabs. Until recently, store-bought meat was a rarity for Teresa, who got all the animal protein she needed off her husband's boat. But particularly since 2010, the year of the BP spill, she's had to rely more on chicken, beef, and pork from the grocery. That shift, she says, affects more than just what's on her plate. Before the spill, like Donald's brother uh, next door, well, he used to do a crab ball at least three, four times a week on the side of the bayou. And we would all go eat crabs. And even people, the community, they would pass by and they would stop and we'd visit, they'd eat. You know, it was a community thing. It wasn't just um, for the family. It wasn't just for certain people. If they were passing, they would stop. Then once the BP happened, you know, it, I mean, it all fell apart. And, you know, it wasn't, well, we don't see each other as much anymore. Coming up, the search for edible solutions in this community and beyond. That's ahead. There is that donor music. Lodge Manufacturing in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, is a family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1896. Demand for their cookware continues to grow, so they're in the midst of building a new foundry to increase manufacturing capacity by 75%. Drive through South Pittsburgh now, and you can see the new facility, opposite the river rising through the trees. That new foundry means more skillets for cornbread, more griddles for pancakes, more Dutch ovens for Brunswick stew. It also means more jobs for the people in their community. 92 more jobs, to be exact. Lodge supports its South Pittsburgh home just as it supports this podcast. For that, and for manufacturing skillets like your grandmother used, we thank them. And now, back to our story. When you're standing on the narrow neck of land that is the Poinishan Indian community, squeezed by open water on both sides, it's easy to imagine that the tribe is having to bear its challenges alone. But that's not really true. There are tribes scattered throughout the coastal region, and they've been talking among themselves about how to stay fed at a time of ecological crisis. The phrase they use is food sovereignty, the sustainable production of healthy and culturally appropriate food. Just 12 miles from Poinichon, I meet two leaders from another tribe. My name is Cherelle Parfait-Dardar. I am a traditional chief for the Grand Caillou Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw. Dardar, you'll notice, is a common name across tribes. Bonjour, mon nom c'est Marie, Marlene Vedin Fouré. My mama always raised me as Marlene, but on my birth certificate, it's Marie Marlene. Marlene chairs the tribe's Council of Elders. She just turned 70. I'm an elder, a real elder now, you know. Growing up, Marlene's family divided its time. Summers at home in Grand Caillou Dulac, winters at a trapping camp on Bayou de Cod, a few miles to the west. Growing up, she ate crabs, but her mother always cooked them into a stew to make them go further. And of course, I like spicy, so I put a lot of spice in it. I made one not too long ago. I ate two days on it, and then I brought it to my brother. Because uh, my kids, the, the, well, I married a man with three boys, okay? 
and they're they they're Caucasian. They weren't Indians. If they would have been Indians, they'd be eating it. But they weren't. They're not Indians, so they didn't need it. They, it's too messy. And me, I love to sit at the table and <laughs> suck on them crabs. You know. <laughs> Marlene now lives about twenty miles inland from where she grew up. The trapping camp where she spent her childhood winters is gone. The land is gone. Yes, it eroded. Uh, they don't have no more mush rats. You know, we don't see that anymore, and the land just disappeared. So much water coming over that the land has just disappeared. Land loss and flooding mean buying more processed foods, often on limited budgets. Even Chief Shirell, who values traditional foods, finds her own diet suffering. The box dinners, all right, they're very convenient, they're very inexpensive. You, you can get a ton of them. 10 for $10, right? Um, and for a family as big as mine, all right, I have four children. My husband doesn't make all that much money. Um, you know, so we have to support a family and pay the bills, and, and we don't qualify for government assistance. We've got to stretch that dollar to feed our kids. And you have to do it in the least expensive way possible. Well, that's what's available to you. Like Teresa, Sherelle wants her tribe to be eating healthy food of its own making. And that leads us to the First Peoples Conservation Council. It's a group of six Louisiana tribes, including Poinachan and Grand Caillou Dulac, that meet regularly to brainstorm solutions. Teresa chairs the meetings. Staff members from the U.S. Department of Agriculture also attend. So do representatives from nonprofits. The meeting I went to was held just before Christmas at a USDA office building. It felt like a homecoming with gifts and effusive greetings. There were satsuma oranges and homemade cracklings, and even a miniature fishing net made by Ernest Dardar from the Ilde Jean Charles Band. He presented it to Rosina Philippe, whose Grand Bayou village is surrounded entirely by water and accessible only by boat. Wow. Oh. What kind of a net would that be? What would you be catching with that net? What's that? What would you catch with that net? It's, it's a, a replica of a larger net. A larger but for yeah. what? For casting, casting. Uh, shrimp, sure. fish. Well, it's like... You have a loop and you put the loop on your wrist, whatever, and then you open it up, you catch it, and then you bring it out across the water. And the weights, you know, actually... And when you pull the top right here, it closes, and so whatever's in the net you know, comes up with it, and you bring it onto the bank, and then you shake it out, and you have lunch. <laughs> That's it. Hopefully. That's right. Before they settle down to business, Rosina offers a prayer. Help us to understand and to listen and to allow the words to seek into our heart as we do the work for our people. Amen. Amen. The next few hours are a cauldron of ideas. They talk about creating an Excel spreadsheet to record and share changes in the growing seasons, they discuss forming a cooperative that could market value-added seafood products like dried shrimp. They talk about community development loans that might become available to Native American food producers. They imagine gardens that could float like docks. Rosina describes an ambitious project her tribe is working on, raised bed gardens that can be lifted mechanically during storms and exceptionally high tides to keep them dry. We're going to put like a, a cement base with posts you know, into the cement so it doesn't float away with the high tides. And uh, like a pulley system where the, it's a wooden box, raised bed, 
where you can winch it up in case the tides get high because it's a problem now putting things in boxes on the ground. They've been growing plants in boxes for a while now, but the problem is that they're heavy. If there's a high water event, you can't lift them by yourself. You know, I was thinking, how in the world, you know, how in the world can we get these things out of the water? You know, because I practically kill myself every year trying to move these containers that we're having to use. Um, so this is something that, you know, we're going to try. So pulley, yeah. pulley uh, boxes. With some witches, you say. Yes. Uh -huh. If this seems a little extreme, it's a reflection of how determined the 14 households in Grand Bayou are to stay put even without the protection of levees. Rosina's tribe is in a strange position. Even though their ancestral land is vanishing at a startling rate, it's still just an hour from New Orleans. And that makes it coveted real estate. There's a market for vacation homes accessible only by boat, and Grand Bayou is determined not to cave to that demand. We plan to be the last people there. If we were the first, we will be the last. Grand Bayou is situated between the Happy Jack development and the Myrtle Grove development. And it used to be like locals. And when the storms came and things got you know, destroyed, developers came in and they bought the land and they made these back mansions, whatever, that people that live other places come there and that's their getaway place. So we know Grand Bayou would be ideal for that perfect getaway place. I mean, they would develop it, fix it up, you know, sell lots and people can have this exclusive kind of like waterway access only community for other people and we would be gone. So we refuse to leave and leave our home to, you know, outside developers who have more resources. So we have to find um, within ourselves, you know, the resources to maintain a presence in our home. These brainstorming sessions at the First Peoples Conservation Council they're not academic exercises. Down along the bayous, some of the tribal leaders show me how they're implementing ideas they brought home from the meetings. In Grand Caillou Dulac, Chief Shirell leads me behind her house to see a raised bed garden she built using recycled objects. Of course, you know, we ride around and we look for scrap pieces of wood and things like that. Like a, we had an old trampoline. Well, we, instead of throwing that away, we used it. Yes, that is a trampoline turned on its side and used as a trellis for green beans. So we do reuse a lot of things. And of course, you know, we did have to go and purchase good uh, potting soil and things like that. But we made for darn sure that it was totally organic. We didn't want any chemicals in it whatsoever. Uh, you know, cause that's the goal. We need to get back to basics and who we used to be. In Poinishan, the land behind Nasia's house has a new addition, a U-shaped hoop house framed in metal and covered in plastic, where Donald grows his own vegetables. The USDA is a big advocate of hoop houses. Not only do they extend growing seasons, but they also help reduce soil erosion, pest pressure, and wind damage. USDA even subsidizes the cost of hoop houses for growers like Donald. My last afternoon in Poinishen is the day of the community potluck. Let's slice you some ham. Is that enough? Good. Thank you. I take my bowl of shrimp and corn soup, that's my third bowl, for the record, and sit with another tribal leader. Uh, my name is Christine Verdin. I am a member of the council here at Pontichet. Christine tells me about the stack of lumber I had noticed under the steps in front of the tribal headquarters. The tribe plans to build a greenhouse next door 
so they can grow traditional medicinal plants and maybe vegetables. Christine hopes this project will spark a new, community-wide interest in gardening. What we'd like to do is, when we begin it, we'd like to get our kids involved. For instance, have an adult in charge of keeping it up, but having kids from the community come and help water, weed it, and, and also teach them about the plants and what they could have been used for. That information used to be common knowledge in Point of Shen. It's been disappearing, though, as elders die, and the tribe wants to gain that knowledge back. There's a, a young uh, girl at Tulane who is working on a doctorate, and her doctorate is going to be on this sort of plants. But because we've lost some, she's researching places where they're still growing. There's another tribe that has these plants, and so she's hoping that they'll agree to possibly give us a few cuttings or whatever plants so that we could start. Ultimately, Christine says, they want to give plants from the greenhouse to tribal members to start them gardening outside again. We're hoping that with, especially with the levee coming, the, you know, the floodgates, that it'll keep the water from coming in and, and just ruining the rest of our, our plants. And so if we can get things started here in this greenhouse, I'm hoping it'll multiply. What strikes me as I listen to Christine and to Teresa, Rosina, and Sherelle, is how much their work stands to benefit all of us. The tribes of South Louisiana, living along one of the most ragged edges of North America, have had no choice but to grapple with food sovereignty. Climate change, habitat loss, flooding, and environmental accidents hit these communities first, but we're all sitting in this vessel together. And when our own dinners are threatened and our means of feeding ourselves have to be reimagined, we'll have communities like Poinishin to show us the way. Barry Yeoman is a journalist based in Durham, North Carolina. This piece was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network and The Lens. You can learn more by going to our website, southernfoodways.org gravy. Thanks to Eve Abrams, Thomas Walsh, and Richard Ziegler for their help on this episode. Music for this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Our intern is Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a joyful goodbye and a new voice for your ears. But first... Food Media South heads to Birmingham in just two weeks, on February 25th. This third annual event explores storytelling in the digital era. Food Media South, which is underwritten by the Alabama Tourism Department and the Greater Birmingham Convention and Visitors Bureau. It asks timely questions about how immigration and ethnicity and identity impact food stories. If you're a content creator who wants new perspectives, or if you're good at what you do and want to get better, this is the event for you. The conference includes presentations by Chris Ying of Lucky Peach and Von Diaz of StoryCorps, among others. Tickets are $150. For a full schedule of events and a link to purchase tickets, visit southernfoodways.org. Now for that joyful goodbye. I will be moving on from Gravy after this episode to accept a new job with Pop-Up Magazine. I'm so grateful to all of you who've been listening and supporting the show all the way back to the very beginning. And I'm very happy to hand the mic over to John T. Edge, the director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, who will be taken over as host. Hey, gravy people. 
My friends and colleagues call me John T., and I hope you will too. I'm that new voice in your ears. Tina and I have been working together for two years now. Together, we've complicated stereotypes and documented new dynamics. Under Tina's smart direction, Gravy has been a big success. We've won two James Beard Awards in two successive years, and Gravy has been downloaded like 800,000 times now. That's another way of saying we're closing in on a million. Going forward, My Georgia Meets Mississippi Draw will lead you in and out of stories, down lonesome highways, and through strip mall suburbs. Together, we'll commune with the women who fed the civil rights movement, setting welcome tables of fried chicken and collards and corn pone in Atlanta and Albany, Georgia. Gravy will ponder what happens when Native American food traditions collide with a casino economy in North Carolina. Together, we'll eat kimchi at the Korean barbecue restaurants that have sprung up around the Hyundai plant in Montgomery, Alabama. And no matter where we run, rest assured, we will, always and forever, make cornbread, not war.